Our text for this morning's sermon is Luke 13, verses 10 through 21. We'll be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, looking at verses 10 through 21. Now, as he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, or he was teaching at one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath day untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away and water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Uh, Father, uh, what is needed this morning is the work of the Spirit in all of our hearts uh, through your Word. Father, I pray that you would use your Word this morning uh, to do a work in our hearts that we might see Christ more clearly. Father, that it would bring repentance and faith and joy. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As Christians living in a culture that is becoming more and more secular and more and more hostile to us, it's really easy to begin to feel sorry for ourselves to gather together with other Christians and feel sorry for the way that the world seems to be turning against us. And we begin to feel like things are spiraling out of control. We begin to be disillusioned, if we're honest, I think, as we look at all those things with our Christian 
expectations. We begin to look around and wonder, is the gospel really powerful when everything seems to be crumbling around us? Many professing Christians, many churches, in light of this reality, seek to handle this pressure by simply taking things into their own hands, essentially changing to become more in step or more relevant with the culture so that we don't feel so detached or like we're losing influence or losing control. If we're honest, all of us struggle with this. We look at our lives, get this mentality that I need to do this, I need to do that, and we quit looking to Christ. At the conference we were at, I want to bring you one nugget that I think will forever stick in my brain. In a sense, as a pastor and as a preacher, uh, the fear of God must be in front of my eyes all the time. I must remember the privilege of the calling. I must remember the accounting that I will give as a pastor. And I had the privilege of hearing an incredible illustration that brought this holy fear in front of me. And it was from a man that God in his providence used to change my life probably more than any other man, uh, any other preacher. Uh, his name is Paul Washer. By the grace of God, I even got to run into him at the conference, talk with him for a minute and get a picture with him. One of the things I knew to say to him was not to say how great a guy he was because he would correct me. I knew he would correct me if I would say that. And so I carefully shared with him how God had used his preaching to change my life in so many ways. And I said, I know you're a sinner who God uses. And he said, young man, as long as you know as long as you have good theology and you know what man is, it's not wrong to be thankful to God for it. And he talked about how R.C. Sproul was that for in his life. But R.C. Sproul is still a man. And the illustration he gave, and the topic is worship, He's speaking to a lot of pastors. And he gave this illustration that when he was a missionary in Peru, it was during a time of civil war. It was a dangerous time to be uh, traveling through the mountains and in different places. And his wife, Charo, would always want to go with him to wherever he was ministering. And 
he would take her with unless he was in what he called red zones, places where he knew it was likely that he might get roughed up by military or by terrorists. He said it wasn't uncommon for them to grab him and and uh, treat him unkindly and intimidate him and push him down. And he had said that that was not an uncommon thing, but he would never bring his wife there to those places because he says, you rough me up, no big deal. But you touch my wife. If someone lays a hand on my wife, then it's a different story. And then he gave this illustration. He said, imagine a king who has a bride who he loves so much. He adores his bride. And the king's going on a long journey. And he goes to one of his faithful stewards and he puts the steward in charge of taking care of his bride and his wife. And he leaves him detailed instructions on how to care for her. She's clothed just the way the king wants her to be clothed in beautiful white garments that are simple but beautiful. And he goes on the journey. But the king tarries for a long time. He doesn't come back as soon as expected. And the culture of the kingdom is progressive. And it's moving along. And the king becomes less and less popular with the people. The king's not there to keep up with the times. The bride is behind the times. And so the steward says, I got an idea. I'm going to help my master out. I'm going to gain him some, a better view in the eyes of the people. And so he goes to the bride and he lets her hair down and he paints her face and he pulls up her skirt a little bit and he dresses her like a whore. And then he takes the bride in front of the carnal men of the kingdom in front of the people in order that they might actually be excited about the king's kingdom and the bride that she's in step with culture. And then he said, how do you think it's going to go for that steward when the king shows up? And then he said, pastors, do you realize there's not a higher calling on earth than to care for the bride of Jesus Christ? And he said, pastors, how many have 
Quit looking at the Scripture to see how to care for the bride of Christ has done away with that and by carnal means tried to draw people to her. And it was a humble reminder that there ought be no maverick pastors or leaders looking to draw people to the church by means outside of what God has called for her to do. And it revived the things by the grace of God I think we already believe in. We're not a church that puts hope in man-made strategies and ways to somehow get people's attention. One of the things Washer said was, give me intercessory prayer. Give me the scriptures and give me the Holy Spirit. These are the things God has given the church of God. And we so easily see those things as old-fashioned. We can begin to think, oh, I wish we had this. I wish we had that. And miss what God has given us. We'll see this morning that our affections for Christ will be greatly impacted by your expectations for him. My main question to you is this, what's the state of your heart towards Christ? What is the state of your heart towards Christ? What I am not asking you, what you believe about Christ. That's not the question. That's a good question, but that's not the question. I assume that most of you believe the right things about Christ. What is your state of heart? What are your affections like towards Christ? Or let's put it this way. How are your affections towards Him in comparison towards your affections towards other things in this world? That's the question. And what I'm saying is, in this text, we're going to see that if you have wrong expectations that you create in your own mind, your affections, your love for Christ will be less than it ought to be. And I'm here to tell you, I'm asking that question knowing your affections fall short of Christ. All of our affections fall short of what He deserves. But we'll see that biblical perspective and expectations bring about godly worship. Look at Luke 13, verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Just to give us a little context here, 
Jesus was teaching in a synagogue. It was on a particular day. It was on the Sabbath day. Uh, a synagogue came into being uh, several hundred years before Christ. When the Babylonians destroyed the temple in 586, Jewish exiles began to gather together and study God's word together. And these eventually got formed into uh, synagogues. Uh, a synagogue, they were everywhere in Judea, in Galilee. In fact, one historian uh, says there was 480 in Jerusalem at the time of Christ. So little places where Jews gather together, there needed to be a minimum of 10 Jews where they would gather together, they would read the scripture, there would be a ruler of the synagogue or rulers of the synagogue that were lay uh, workers who would approve certain teachers to come and read scripture, explain the scripture, and then pray. And this was a common thing that Jesus did in his ministry is he would uh, teach in the synagogues. Uh, one of the most, the first time we see this was in Luke 4. And I actually wanted to take you here because you're going to see similarities in how this uh, plays out. In Luke 4, we have this unique case where Jesus is actually teaching in the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth. And by this time, reports have been going out throughout all the surrounding country uh, about Christ. His fame is spreading. Uh, if you look at Luke 4, 15, it says, and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. And then he shows up in his own synagogue to teach. And he reads opens the scriptures to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and then he quotes from the Psalms and from Leviticus, messianic texts, and he says, these have been fulfilled in your midst. And then in verse 22, here's the response. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said, doubtless, doubtless, you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And then he points out how in Elijah's day, there was a great famine and Elijah was only set, sent to a Gentile widow and the widow of Zarephath to help her. And then he talks about how Elijah was sent to the uh, to Naaman and no other lepers in Israel. Basically what they were saying is is Jesus, we know you're powerful. We are excited you're here. This is a different this is a different Sabbath day when you're here. We're about to see something amazing. And he says, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, why don't you do the works that you did in Capernaum here? Come on. We're the ones you grew up with. 
you owe us these signs and these wonders. And he says, haven't you read? God didn't send Elijah to any widows in Israel in the time of that famine. God healed the Gentile Naaman from his leprosy and no others by Elisha. And then here's the response. When they, verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath or rage. It was just, they went from, we're so excited, we're glorifying him, we're marveling at him, to they're filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing out of their midst, he went away. You say, how, how can they go from one minute, looks like they're worshiping him, looks like they're loving him, the next minute they're trying to kill him. They hate him. The answer is, they had preconceived expectations of what the Messiah should do and ought to do. And as soon as he didn't fit that little box, they're ready to kill him. And this was the theme throughout Christ's ministry. Peter even rebukes him when he says he's going to go die on a cross. Peter's struggling with wrong expectations for this Christ. False expectations do not lead to worship. Do not lead to a heart that loves Christ. And so here in chapter 13, he's teaching in a synagogue. And while he was teaching, it says, And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. So this woman walks in. The teaching had already started. She's bent over. She's been this way for 18 years. And if you look at verse 16, you can see it's um, she is bound by Satan. So this illness is related to uh, satanic uh, um, influences. And she walks into the synagogue and is healed. What an incredible thing that happened that day. What a joyous thing that happened that day. Do you know someone who's been disabled for a long time, struggled for so long? What if in a moment they could be healed, to be set free from that thing. What time is it in this synagogue? It is time 
to worship and praise God, is it not? She knew that. She knew that. Look at verse 13. She was made straight and she glorified God. What does it mean to glorify God? We say words like this all the time. We need to glorify God with our life. We're to live for his glory. What does it mean to glorify God? Here's what John Piper gives as as a definition. Glorifying means feeling and thinking and acting in ways that reflect his greatness, that make much of God, that give evidence of the supreme greatness of all of his attributes and the all-satisfying beauty of his manifold perfections. It means to respond rightly from the heart to God. We've talked about this a lot. What's our heart? It's your thinking. It's your feeling. And it's your actions. All those things come out of our heart. So when I say, how are your affections towards Christ? What I'm asking is, is are you glorifying Christ? Are you thinking in a way, loving in a way, and acting in a way that shows God is incredible and great and mighty? Or another possibility is you could be feeling quite ripped off with the expectations of what you expect God to be doing in your life. And if that's the case, your affections will be low for Christ. Your thoughts will be low for Christ. Your actions will be few for Christ. But she responds correctly to the beautiful thing that Christ has done for her. But she's not the only responder. Look at verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, while she's glorifying, anger fills the ruler of the synagogue. Now just think. False religion has leaders in it that don't love their people. They love their system that makes much of themselves. And Jesus was wrecking the system, which was wrecking the identity of this ruler of the synagogue. So rather than worshiping God in that moment, anger filled his heart. And I would love to say, I cannot relate to that guy at all. But there's been times in my life where I know I'm supposed to be worshiping God and anger fills my heart. What expectations was I having in those moments? How was it about glorifying me 
rather than God. We can actually be like this, where we ought to be worshiping God because he's doing wonderful things in one of our brother or sister's lives, and yet we're nitpicking or, or angry inside. And that was the response of this ruler of the synagogue. And he's too cowardly to approach Christ, so instead he talks to the people. He said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. And not on the Sabbath day. This poor woman suffered for 18 years. And she gets scolded by the ruler of the synagogue. We don't even know that she was coming to be healed. She walks in. She didn't ask for healing. Christ saw her. And Christ healed her. Then the Lord answered him, and then he says in the plural, hypocrites, because he represents so many in that day. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Now, once again, just a little context. When I say that in those days, the Jewish religious leaders had made up a lot of rules regarding the Sabbath that were not actually from the law, that would be an incredible understatement. In fact, I, we don't have time, but I'd love to read you <laughs> the ridiculous things that they would do. I'll, okay, I'll read a couple. The Talmud devotes 24 chapters to Sabbath regulations. So God gives the law, and then they make hundreds of laws around the law to make sure the law is right. And in doing so, they destroy the law. There's 24 chapters on Sabbath regulations. There were guidelines about uh, and regulations on carrying items. It was forbidden to carry anything heavier than a dry fig. But if you were carrying something that was half the weight of a dry fig, you could carry it twice. <laughs> you couldn't move a chair because the chair would make a little uh, a line in the dirt on your dirt floor, and that's too much like plowing. So you couldn't move your chair. And you laugh at this, but it's real. This is what Israel was like. This is what man-made ideas of we're going to take it into our own hands. We're going to do it our own way. This is what it turned into. In fact, a woman couldn't even look in a mirror because she might see a gray hair and pluck it out. And if she plucked it out, it would be working. It's incredible. Also in the Mishnah, where they had this codified, the codified, uh, the codification of Jewish rabbinic law permitted animals to be led to food and water on the Sabbath as long as they carried no burden. And so Jesus is taking their man-made law and he's saying, you're even hypocrites here. 
He's saying, you'll take your donkey there, but a daughter of Abraham, he's really trying to strike in to their Jewish soul. But So you'll give your donkey a drink, but you're going to scold the daughter of Abraham for being relieved on the Sabbath. They did not understand the purpose of the Sabbath as many even today don't understand it. Uh, To just give you a a quick meaning of what the Sabbath is, the Sabbath is fundamentally a Mosaic covenant sign commanded by God in the law, rooted in the pattern of creation and the Abrahamic promise. Now, here's what I mean by that. If we're going to say, what does the Sabbath mean? We go to the text. The text is explicit about the meaning of the covenant sign. A sign has a meaning to it. In Exodus 31, 12, here's what we read. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths For this is a sign between me and you throughout all your generations that you may know. So we're going to find out the purpose of the Sabbath sign that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Above all else, Moses, keep the Sabbath. This is a covenant sign that I've given you so that you may know it's I that sanctify you. You will not sanctify you. I will do it. That's the purpose of the sign. It's repeated in a, in a similar way in Deuteronomy 5.12. Observe the Sabbath day. Keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your sons or your daughters or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant, now get this, and your female servant may rest as well as you. It's a gift. It's a blessing. And they turned it in to the most miserable thing ever. And then he says this. Here's what it means. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. What's the purpose of the Sabbath? Is you can't save yourself. You can't do the work to make your soul rest. God's the one who does that work. Ezekiel says it like this. Ezekiel 29. So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness and I've gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I, the Lord, sanctify them. 
So get this in your minds. The purpose of the Sabbath is to remind the people of Israel that God is the one who takes care of them. God is the one who cleans them up and makes them holy. Making all these Sabbath laws is exactly the opposite. This is the human effort to make themselves holy. And you tell me how right it is that Jesus Christ, who is God himself, makes a woman healed on the Sabbath. It is the most right thing that Christ could do because God is the one who cleans us up, who heals us, who saves us. Of course Christ purposely did so many miracles on the Sabbath and He continually said things. I've been working every day since I've been here. It's this work language. When God rested on the seventh day, He rested on the seventh day and then He's been working. And Christ came working on our behalf. And so... As he revealed these things to them, their hypocrisy, we read in verse 17, as he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. And then he gives us this parable that you're probably all familiar with. He said, therefore, so in light of that situation, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain, a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, threw into his garden, this tiny little seed. He throws it in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So why does he say this? Why does he speak like this in, at this particular time? It's because everyone had a wrong idea of the kingdom of God. All their expectations were wrong. Even the disciples were wrong. And he's giving them biblical, godly perspective of how they're supposed to be viewing him. He says the kingdom of God starts so small, looks so insignificant. It's like a man who takes the smallest crop seed, throws it into a, his garden. But it ends up so big that even birds can make their nest and rest there. Even things foreign to the garden can come there and will be able to rest and stay there. It's not that they'd come by and perch on a branch, but they could rest there. He says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's an outward illustration that though this thing starts small, it's not going to end small. Though it looks insignificant now, it's going to end glorious and big. And then he speaks of the leaven. And he's talking about not the outward appearance now, but the inward. Leaven was uh, 
fermented um, uh, material that's put into dough that makes it rise, makes bread so much better. A lot of times he uses that negatively, talking about the leaven of sin, but here it's positively. The kingdom of God works on the inside and it's kind of hidden, but it's going to turn out to be this glorious thing. Because the people were frustrated with him. In Luke 17, being asked by the Pharisees, when will the kingdom of God come? He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, it's here or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He's saying the king's here. You can't observe it in the ways you're looking to observe it. It looks unimpressive. In fact, very few people ended up following Christ at the end of his ministry. There's 500 people at the Meet Him on the Mountain post-resurrection. There's 120 at Pentecost. MacArthur says, for from a human perspective, the world was not impressed with Christian men. It looked like a failed effort in a small town, far from the aspirations of the Jew. Jesus picked 12 men. One of them was a traitor. The leader of the group ends up dead on a cross. Got 500, 120 people. Unimpressive in the eyes of the world. The disciples struggled with this all along. James and John expected him to just bring this glorious kingdom right now. And so they come to him and say, grant us to sit at your right hand, one of your right hand and one of your left in glory. Like they're going right now and he's going to set up this kingdom. Peter said, see, we've left everything to follow you. What will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit the kingdom of God. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. The crowd struggled with him after he fed the 5,000. Uh, we read in John six fourteen when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed uh, the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they're about to come and take him by force to make him a king, they would, Jesus withdrew again. Here, here's the deal. They saw his power. They knew he was powerful. And it angered them that he didn't use that power the way they wanted him to use that power. They knew that he had the power to overthrow the Romans who they were under their rule at that time. And for them to know the power of Christ and for Christ not to do what they expected caused them to call for his murder and his death. Unbiblical expectations lead to not only not worshiping God, but hating God. Remember Pi or remember Herod? 
Luke 23, 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had longed to desire to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Jesus keeps his mouth shut. He doesn't do anything. Herod's furious with him, begins to mock him, begins to ridicule him. And we have Pilate wondering if he's really a king. John 18, 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am uh, a king. Uh, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate didn't listen because he says, ha, what is truth? Nearly everybody disappointed with Christ. Their expectations were small or or, uh, worldly. Revelation 20 shows us Christ coming down to this earth and sitting on a literal throne on this earth. Verse 4, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those whom had authority to judge was committed. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and for those who had not worshipped the beast nor his images and had not received the mark on their foreheads nor their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This was the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they'll be priests of God and of Christ, and they'll reign with him for a thousand years. I want to leave you with this question. If Christ, or with this, I should say, exhorting, if Christ has not had your full affections. If you come here today and you just admit, my heart has been here, been going after these things. My thinking, my affections, my actions have not been glorifying God. I haven't been seeing him for who he truly is. Listen to Jesus. It starts like a mustard seed. Jesus said, if the world hated me, it would hate you. You might feel insignificant. You might feel ripped off as your culture's turning on you. But we are not powders. We are not those who worry. We are those who have the proper expectation that is given us in the scriptures. We've been given the scriptures. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We have a resurrected Savior who will come. And when he comes, he will rule with a rod of iron. And there will be no rebellion against him. Ultimately, when he destroys all his enemies. So right now, in the everyday blandness of your life, 
Remember who Christ is. Remember that he died on the cross for your sins. The Christian looks back and forward. We look back at the cross. We see him carrying our sin on the cross. Of course he did. God's the one who sanctifies us. God is the one who gives us rest. And yes, right now, we're fighting in the power of the Holy Spirit. The world's laughing at us, but we're looking forward to the day. We see him as a king enthroned. Father, I pray that our affections would match what something more of what they ought to be. Father, I pray that there's no one here that thinks they can save themselves, that thinks uh, they can create rest for their own soul. Father, terrify the hearts of these people with an eternity of unrest in hell. Cause them to look at your gracious offer of salvation in Christ that they might enter your rest. Father, I pray that you would give us love for each other. That as we see you rightly, we will respond with joy and love towards others. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.